Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And Sarah and I decided to do some episodes for Black History Month. So our topic for today is a man some people know as Black Moses. By 1919, this Black Moses claimed a following of as many as 2 million people. And there are African Americans and people from the West Indies who were just tired of being denied their rights or subjected to violence just because they're black. But unlike his predecessor, Booker T. Washington, and his contemporary, W.E.B. Du Bois, Black Moses didn't preach assimilation. He didn't even oppose segregation, just the mistreatment that went along with it. Yeah, and instead his line was pan-Africanism, and it was a desire to unite all the people separated under the black diaspora as one people. And he believed that once Africa became associated with, quote, armies, navies, and men of big affairs, people of African descent wouldn't be denied their rights anymore, and they wouldn't be subjected to violence and to pity. And this line of thought put him at the head of America's first major black nationalist movement based in Harlem, which was known as Garveyism. And the name gives you a clue as to the answer to our question, who is Black Moses? Black Moses was Malchus Mosiah Garvey, who today we know as Marcus Garvey, who was born in 1887 at St. Anne's Bay in Jamaica. And as far as what we know about his parents, his dad may have been a master mason or perhaps just someone who broke stones on the roadway. But regardless of what he did as a profession, he really, truly loved books. And he spent as much time as he could in his own private library, which was a building actually separate from the family home. I can only hope. And his mother helped support the family by selling her delectable pastries. But um, later in life, Garvey really emphasized that he came from a family of, quote, black Negroes. He really wants to distinguish himself from the other terms that uh, people in the West Indies use to describe themselves, like brown or mulatto. He emphasizes that his people are from Africa. And he's not even completely sure about people who do have white lineage. As much as he emphasizes that in himself, he actually does a lot of work with people who are of mixed race. Yeah, a lot of it is kind of talk. Yes, but he does make statements like this, which, of course, are important when you're talking about his life. He's largely self-taught, but he does get a valuable apprenticeship with a printer, which helped him learn a lot about the art of composition and about the business of running a press, which will come in handy later. Yeah, he, he learned the journalistic trade in this apprenticeship, as well as the mechanics of it. Um, but he travels some as a youth. He goes to Central America, where he's really disappointed to find um, black people living in similarly bad conditions as they are in Jamaica. And as many young people living in countries with a strong British influence, he is also driven to London. And he lives there from 1912 to 1914. And um, he starts to learn about pan-Africanism and uh, that sort of thing when he's in London. But he also reads Booker T. Washington's Up From Slavery. And Garvey was certainly an admirer of Washington, uh, even though they disagree on that major point of integration, Washington obviously being for it and Garvey not so much. But he did really like the idea of Washington's Tuskegee Institute and 
comes up with the dream of making his own trade school in Jamaica. And he writes to Washington and secures an invitation to visit. But before he can, Washington dies. So Garvey comes to the United States, nevertheless, in 1916. Um, but all right. So before we talk about his early days in the United States, we should mention that in Jamaica, in 1914, he founds the very long name. It's very unwieldy. <laughs> Universal Negro Improvement and Conservation Association and African Communities League, which is usually just called the Universal Negro Improvement Association. And we're going to call it the UNIA. And the group had a pan-African agenda. So we wanted to talk a little bit about what that means. There's a bit of a spectrum. On one side, according to Wilson Jeremiah Moses, sometimes it just is a call for unity among black or African peoples wherever they might reside. That's a quote from Moses. And on the other side, we've got the goal of uniting the entire African continent under one government to be controlled by Africans. Yeah, so I kind of see this as a pan-African light and then (laughs) a very intense version. Um, But the UNIA, which has this pan-African agenda, doesn't really catch on in Jamaica. And this is partly why Garvey is attracted to the U.S. And he actually becomes so involved in UNIA work when he's in the United States that he eventually abandons his other motive for coming, which was the Jamaican trade school plan. But the UNIA really picks up steam, uh, especially in Harlem and in other cities. And by 1919, he's got that following of about 2 million people. This is really the height of his popularity. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about Garvey and his work with the UNIA. Garvey is a pitch man, and he speaks to black power, but specifically black economic power. He's also interested in black history and in African identity, but black economic power is kind of at the center of what he wants to do. Yeah, and that interest in black history and African identity, we talked about the pan-Africanism already, but he's also interested in Afrocentrism, which is really more of a philosophical movement. And it's the idea that Africa is the center of black history and cultural identity, and that black people all around the world should celebrate the Ethiopians and the Egyptian civilization and kind of consider that... uh, a golden age of the pharaohs was going on at the same time that Europeans were, you know, considered barbarians living in caves. And Garvey was also convinced that whenever black people accomplish something amazing, they're basically reclassified as white. So he went with that whole racist one drop rule and that one drop of blood makes makes you black. black. Right. And reclaimed it and embraced it for historical vindication saying, well, all right, then the pharaohs are black. So deal with that. So his newspaper, Negro World, is very Afrocentric, and it's really his instrument um, to communicate, you know, Afrocentrism and Pan-Africanism to his followers. And he's got a lot of popular articles, not just on news, but on African history and society. And he's really good at this paper business. We, we've talked a lot about these great publishing men recently, but um, he's good at this. He's a journalist, and it's the UNIA's big success and something to remember when we talk about some of its spectacular failures later on. But Garvey is a born publicist, and he's got this great sense of style and composition. And at its peak, um, Negro World has a regular circulation of 50,000 or more readers, um, 
and but that doesn't count. Yeah. Even all the people who were listening to it being read aloud at work or in beauty parlors all around the city. So that's a low estimate. Yeah, definitely. But don't think of Marcus Garvey as a retiring sort of newspaper man. He's very showy. He wears plumes and military-style clothing. Sarah emailed me some fabulous pictures earlier. But you know, Katie and I are always interested in the plumes. Well, we're, we're big into that. You're the green editor. We have to be. Yeah. But he's not just about talking and promoting and pitching. It's it's not all talk. He wants to be the guy at the head of this economic revolution that he dreams of. But unfortunately, he is no businessman. Yeah. And his goal is to establish an independent black economy. So not integrate into the existing white economy, but have his own. And so he establishes the Negro Factories Corporation and then a line of black-run restaurants and grocery stores, laundries, uh, a hotel, a printing press, and then most famously, the Black Star Line. (laughs) Most famously for being a complete misadventure. So the idea behind the Black Star Line is actually really impressive. It was a shipping line that was meant to be the foundation of trade between Africans around the world. So it would increase the distribution of black-made products and make more money for the black community. And it's popular. People want to be involved in this. It's incorporated in 1919, um, selling stocks at $5 a share. And it has between 30,000 and 40,000 stockholders. And these are people who could have invested in some of the businesses, you know, the restaurants and the laundromats and all that. And many do. Um, But a lot of people choose the Black Star Line because it offers economic independence and because it just seemed so militant. It was so bold. It was a really bold, impressive, showy kind of idea. But unfortunately, terrible investments and mismanagement lead to the line and Garvey's downfall. There was just a lot of incompetence, not only with Garvey, but also with the people he hired and surrounded himself with. The vessels are dilapidated and sometimes just unseaworthy. One of them um, originally called the Yarmouth and renamed Frederick Douglass. You'll see this is a, they renamed their boats. Um, it was purchased on the advice of a West Indian captain named Joshua Cockburn, who gets a $1,600 brokerage fee for buying it. And it's not that great of a ship, but still people are excited about the inauguration of the Black Star Line, and maybe it seems like it'll work out, but on its voyage to Cuba with a cargo of whiskey, it runs aground off the Bahamas while Cockburn is asleep. And then finally, it does get to Cuba, makes no profit, runs aground again off of Boston, and it's sold at public auction the next year. And this is just, this This epitomizes these these boats here. They're all sunk, abandoned, or sold at public auction shortly thereafter. And The other side of this whole shipping line idea was transporting people, because that was the ultimate plan. You would resettle all of the black people in Africa, which is the scheme Garvey is probably best known for. Yeah. So one year after the launch of the Black Star Line, Garvey starts the Liberia program. And um, in fact, in 1920, which once again, this is like the height of his popularity, there's a Madison Square Garden meeting of 25,000 people, and they elect him the provisional president of Africa, which I have no idea what that is means. a rather bold title. <laughs> but um, the idea was to give American blacks an African base and um, to develop Liberia as a kind of economic powerhouse. 
1920, a UNIA delegation sets up a deal with the Liberian government to set aside land for the UNIA to develop. And, you know, Liberia says, okay, they're agreed. And the UNIA sets up this Liberian Development Corporation and raises $750,000. But this money simply disappears like again. So many of the UNIA's Yes, you got all the money and then it's gone. So the Liberians, who are definitely in need of some kind of influx of capital here, they need to develop their country, move on. Because um, at this point, there's increasingly bad PR around Garvey and the UNIA. And France and Great Britain even pressure Liberia to announce that the UNIA can't have the land after all. So instead, the Liberians set up a partnership with the American rubber industry, specifically Firestone Company, um, because got to consider at this time the automobile industry is really picking up and we need tires in America. Right. But this whole venture is the beginning of the end for Garvey. We've got some bad business deals going on, some definite failures, um, and Garvey's popularity ensures that the white establishment is looking for a way to bring him down. He's very powerful, and they don't like it. Yeah, a, a young J. Edgar Hoover is especially hard after him. He sees him as a threat to the American way. But he also has enemies from within and from within his own organization. In 1919, a guy named George Tyler actually shoots him four times in the UNA offices. But then it gets a little sketchy. Yeah, the state attorney general, um, Edwin P. Kilrow, says that Tyler was going to make damaging revelations about Garvey's business practices. And then shortly after, Tyler dies in police custody. And um, Garvey sort of puts out the word that maybe the UNIA was a victim of a plot by Kilrow, the attorney general. And he says that and many of his followers end up believing him. And Garvey's also clashing with leaders of other black movements. He's having confrontations with A. Philip Randolph, with Du Bois, who's head of the NAACP at the time, and also Robert S. Abbott, who's the publisher and editor of Chicago Defender, a rival black paper. Abbott really cannot stand Garvey. He thinks he's a a charlatan, essentially. Um, But Garvey falls out hard after the government finally pins some charges on him. On January 12, 1922, he's arrested and later indicted on 12 counts of mail fraud, which, you know, mail fraud. (laughs) Lawyers have been hunting for some kind of technical charge. Anything to get him on. Stumbled upon this one. The arrest, though, stirs up a lot of existing negative press about the Black Star Line's financial problems, and the Black press demands some proof that this company works, that it's not, you know, just a a front or that their money's not going to waste. Yeah, think of all the investment that's gone into this shipping line. So the Black Star Line says that it will buy the ship Orion, which they'll rename the Phyllis Wheatley, Um, and this is really the nail in the coffin of Garvey's career. It the the purchase is bogged down by a bunch of legal and financial problems. The white agent negotiates a purchase and takes a third of the deposit money for himself. And meanwhile, the U.S. Shipping Board, which owns the Orion, um, is being urged by the FBI to demand a bond of $450,000, which is three times the purchase price. So Garvey is stuck. You know, he can't get his ship can't pay $450,000, so he's in a real pickle by this point. And it really, really does not help that he tries to get 
pretty much the worst allies ever as his popularity plummets. He meets with the KKK, um, meets up with the Imperial Wizard in Atlanta in June of 1922. And if this absolutely makes no sense to you, he justifies himself by saying, and I quote, I was speaking to a man who was brutally a white man, and I was speaking to him as a man who was brutally a Negro. So I can't justify it for you any more than Garvey did. So Garvey is convicted in 1923, and his appeals unsuccessful. He's sentenced to federal prison back in Atlanta again for six years. But Calvin Coolidge commutes his sentence after two, and he's deported to Jamaica, but he ultimately ends up in England, where he dies pretty much in obscurity in middle age. Um, The UNIA really can't press on without charismatic Garvey at its head. And interestingly, though, you know, despite this Black Star line, despite the failed Liberian movement, it's not seen as a failure. It it helps shape what's to come, which is um, the black nationalism that really strengthens after World War II. And according to Wilson Jeremiah Moses, again, he had quite a lot of accomplishments. This is a quote from him. Marcus Garvey revealed the ability of African Americans to combine capital, organize politically, create jobs, provide a forum for writers and intellectuals, and sustain institutions independent of white philanthropy. Which is of note, because, I mean, even the early NAACP was pretty heavy on white leadership. Um, but kind of a an interesting footnote to this whole story Um if, if we're not going to just leave you with mail fraud and dying in obscurity. In 1987, Representative Charles Rangel introduced measures to Congress to have Garvey exonerated on those mail fraud charges. And he was going off of research done by Robert A. Hill, who had found evidence in the National Archives that the conviction was politically motivated because Hoover and the Justice Department saw links between Garveyism and the communist movement. That Hoover. Yeah, that Hoover. Um, So it's interesting, and I think that people are still trying to make this happen. It's kind of um, an unprecedented thing to have a a um, posthumous pardon, but or at least that we know of. At, at least as far as we know. So send us an email if you if you have any updates on the Garvey exoneration process at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. And that brings us to listener mail. We got an email from Anne from Houston who'd written us a, a bit of a follow-up to our Burke and Wills expedition talking about the camels in Australia, which have become a huge problem. She sent Feral a, camels. Right. She sent a link uh, to the Times Online, a story from January 21st of this year, 2010. And apparently the government had committed $19 million to culling the camel population of Australia over four years. shoot them down from helicopters. Yeah, that never really goes over well in the press. Um, And instead, some people are trying to get them sent to Saudi Arabia, where apparently you can buy a baby camel burger, which tastes a lot like beef. So amnesty for Australian camels, I guess. Right. And thank you for the footnote, Anne. But going back to Garvey, if you want to learn more about where all these movements led, you should read our article, How the Civil Rights Movement Worked. Uh, It's on our homepage, www.howstuffworks.com, and we will inevitably be talking about the 60s and the later black history movement when we continue this February series. 
so you'll want a little more background. And if you would also like to connect with us in another way, you can now follow us on Twitter at Mist in History. So come find us. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. 